This is the Straight Truth Podcast, biblical answers to difficult questions from a Christian worldview. So our next question has to do with Adam, uh, thinking of Adam both before and after he sinned and what state uh, he was in. Uh, the, the general question was, did, did Adam have free will, mm. you know, say prior to sin? And maybe is that different from afterwards? But here, here's how the question goes. Considering the spiritual death that occurred when Adam sinned, mm-hmm. he, he died spiritually. Right. And uh, what was lost, and, and what was lost in that fall, so he's made perfectly in God's image, but then all of that is, is, uh, is lost. He's going to experience both physical and spiritual death. Um, would Adam have had free will prior to that sin? Yeah, of course, you know, We'll always stumble a bit over what do you mean by free will, but we, we can say this, that before the fall, Adam had the ability to obey God, and he had the ability, obviously, to disobey God. He could have chosen to obey. He could choose not to obey. And he, made the, he had the capacity, and he made the choice not to obey. Immediately after the fall, he lost the freedom to obey God in, in the fullest sense of what that means some sort of external obedience, of course, but in terms of what man is meant to be in terms of obedience to God, in spiritual death that is lost. And until the Lord had mercy upon Adam and forgave his sins and and gave him a a new nature, that would have been lost, the ability to obey God from the heart, gone. What also was lost was the ability not to sin. Now, Now he would be a sinner. He would violate the laws of God, the commands of God, the desires of God, what pleases God. So, so that's what was lost. And that, I think that answers the question. Maybe there's something more you'd want to bring up along those lines. Where my mind goes, however, is what is the state now of a believer, a Christian, compared to Adam's original state? You know, what, what has salvation done for us after the fall what did Jesus Christ come to do for us that answers what happened with Adam? And the answer uh, to that question is, Christ brought the forgiveness of all of our sins. His death, burial, and resurrection explains why it is that God is able to graciously uh, not only forgive our sins, but make us new creations, change our very natures, grant us a new heart, in the language of Scripture, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. What is our condition now? Well, now we have the freedom to obey God. We can walk in His commandments. We can walk in the truth. We can walk in the light. Until we are glorified one day, we're still dealing with the flesh. There's still unredeemed humanness that is indwelling sin. So we have the ability to sin and we have the the ability to obey. We prove our ability to sin but as believers, thank God, we also have the ability to obey. Now we move beyond this age to the final state where one day we have a resurrected body that matches the new us. What will our condition be in the eternity to come? The answer will be not only is it true to say we will have the, the ability to obey God, to delight in God, to walk in the light, but no longer will we be able to sin. Mm-hmm. Now a new nature physical nature that matches the new spiritual nature and and we will no longer be able to sin. In that way, it's superior to what Adam knew in the garden. Adam could obey or he could sin. Mm-hmm. He fell, 
until redemption, there's not an ability to obey, and there's only the ability to sin. After redemption, the ability to obey, the ability to sin, glorification, the ability to obey, but no longer the ability to sin. Mm -hmm. No more sin in the eternal state, praise the Lord. And in that way, we are at, Christ has actually transported us to a place that is, that is superior to what Adam knew before the fall. Mm. Not only saved, but secure forever and ever and ever. No possibility of a fall. Mm -hmm. and, and in that way, we're in a better place. Okay, so um, there is a free moral agency that Adam possesses prior to his sin, right. which is that he is able not to sin. Right. right. This is Augustine's terms, at least. Yep. That's what you're yep. saying. Able not to sin. After the fall, however, he's not able not to sin. And that's everyone, we're talking about total depravity, original sin. Everyone after Adam is now not able not to sin. That's right. We're all, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. Right. And, but then because By nature of Christ, and by choice. Yes, by right. nature and by choice. Yes. So Romans 5 and, and, uh, and what Paul says later in the New Testament. And so now, though, in Christ, you're saying that we are back to able not to sin because of the spirit dwelling within us. That's right. right? Yeah. We and, can obey, we can disobey, but we're able not to disobey, to obey due to the spirit, due to the new nature, due to the fact we're new creations. We now can walk in life. Excellent. Yeah. And then the big change you're saying is, is in the eternal state. We are now different from Adam. The, the ultimate hallelujah is in the eternal state. Yeah. When our condition will actually surpass that which mm -hmm. Adam knew in, in his original state because no longer will we be subject to a fall. Adam was still subject to a fall in the garden. We, in, etern in the eternity to come, will no longer be subject to a fall. Hmm. Christ will have secured us for forever. Mm -hmm. so not able to sin. Not, not able to sin. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Yeah, praise God for that. Yeah. This gets me thinking, uh, we, we know that Abraham is justified by faith, Genesis 15, 6. And um, uh, uh, Abraham believed in God and he counted it to, as righteousness. And Paul says, Abraham justified by faith. All, let's say, believers in the Old Testament are justified, are justified by grace through faith. Right? Yeah. When did Adam have faith? After the fall, let's say that. Yeah, I, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly, but I think there are some indicators that give us an answer to that. Adam and Eve... They sin, they, they hide themselves in the garden, they clothe themselves with the work of their own hands, mm. with leaves. God clothes them after that mm. with the skins of animals, which indicates a blood sacrifice. An animal was slain in order to, to clothe them. What a beautiful picture there is of the gospel. I mean, he's already given the gospel promise in the curses, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. that, that one is going to come who will crush the serpent's head. Mm -hmm. he'll, be, he'll be wounded, but he'll crush the serpent's head. There's the promise of the, the first promise of the Redeemer. But the Lord, before he sends them out of the garden, he clothes them, takes away the work of their hands. And this, this is what man still tries to do, cover for his sins with the work of his own hands. How can I overcome my sin problem by my own work, mm -hmm. by, by my own production, by my own performance? God rejects that and he closed them himself mm. and it involved the death of an innocent mm -hmm. so that the gospel was illustrated right there. Mm. And the fact that he closed them, the fact that you see their son Abel knowing about blood sacrifice, mm -hmm. I mean, he brings an offering to the mm -hmm. Lord from his flock. Sure. There's a blood sacrifice involved. Where did he learn that from? Mm -hmm. Who taught him that? I think all of this points to point. the presence of faith somewhere after the fall yeah. Uh, before they're expelled mm. from the garden. That's excellent. And I was even thinking as you're talking, 
he names his wife Eve after That's the exactly fall, right. the mother of all living. And it's like he's saying there, I believe the promise that God gave us that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed That's of the exactly serpent. Right. She's the mother of all living. Yeah, all those are indicators of faith. Okay, our next question has to do with um, the devil and and uh, in God's creation and, and and how we understand this in the full testimony of Scripture. So we've already done a que- we've already done a question before in the podcast about why God created the devil or, or if he even did it. So um, let's propose it this way. So God created the devil knowing that the devil would rebel. And then God created humans in his image and said it was good mm. and then placed them in Eden to be tempted by uh, one of the most cunning of his creatures. Why would God do this? What, in, the, in, in the full plan of the scripture, why would he do this? Yeah. And uh, we have talked about Satan's work in the world before, but I, I do have a, a follow-up question as well that I'm interested in you answering about um, how Paul calls Satan the God of this world and, and what that means in relation to your, the first part of the question here. Yeah. yeah, I love questions like this, Josh, because they're great lessons for us as, as Christians about, about other matters outside of this question. And that is we, we just have to acknowledge that there are things God has revealed and there are things that he hasn't. Yeah. There, there are things that he tells us about because he wants us to know those things. And there are things that belong to him that we will never know mm-hmm. about. Deuteronomy 29, 29, that's a, a good passage. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And, and so one of the greatest disciplines we will learn as Christians is to be content with what God has revealed. And this is something we'll be mocked over, I mean, by the world. You know, we're, we're just simple Bible believers. But now as a, as a Christian for many years and as an older man, I can tell you I am absolutely content being a simple Bible believer. Mm-hmm. So if we take the testimony of the scriptures and we answer that question, the answer is God does everything that he does for his glory. Mm. And when we talk about God doing something for his glory, what we're really talking about is, is God making known something about himself, mm-hmm. about his character, about his name. And so there were things that God determined to put on display about himself that would not be possible apart from creation, apart from a fall. And that's true in terms of a fall that occurred before the world was made in the heavens. And that's true of a fall that occurred after man was created in the garden. God allowed these things for his glory to make, to make truth about God known, to put it on display. And there, there, are, uh, there are a myriad of things that God is doing at the same time. So it's not like that's the only thing God was doing. There are a myriad of other things wrapped up in those decisions God was making. But ultimately, everything God does is for His glory, and it's all mm-hmm. good. It's mm-hmm. perfectly good. It's perfectly right. So when people ask questions like, if God is a good God, why would He create right. Lucifer, whom He knew would fall, and all mm-hmm. the havoc that has come as a result? And why, if God knew that Adam and Eve would fall, uh, did He make them like He did? Why not just, just you know, make them impeccable from the beginning where no fall was even possible? All of those questions, I'm content to leave with God and mm-hmm. to take his simple, straightforward answer to me in Scripture, which is everything he does is ultimately for his glory. And it is perfectly wise and perfectly good so that the elements of, of what God has done that I can't get my mind around, I'm a creature. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not meant to mm-hmm. get my mind around everything my creator has done. Mm-hmm. So like a child, I'll take what he's told me about it and be content with it. Okay. so. Um, so the end for which God created the world was for His glory, and you're yes. saying like even even allowing even even 
with full knowledge, his decrees with full knowledge, knowing that he will create this being who will rebel and then tempt others to fall. It was ultimately to bring about uh, the plan of his of the divine son uh, being being magnified, which gives greater glory to to the Godhead, uh, not only through all of human history but also for all eternity. Yes, and greater greater glory, not in the sense of giving him something he didn't possess already, but putting on display what he already possessed. Yes, okay. And, and there are things that, that happen yeah. through redemption that did not yet happen, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The incarnation, all of that. That, that, that. that was not from all eternity. Mm -hmm. The incarnation had a beginning in time. The death of Christ happened in history. The resurrection mm -hmm. happened in history. So in that sense, you could say to bring about a greater glory, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, the glory of God is being put on display through those events. Mm -hmm. you know, what was already true of God is, is put on display through those events. I love what you said when you said this is the, the you know, chief end of all things. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. Here's why it's important what, what we're talking about to be able to embrace that hmm. simply in faith and be content with it. Yeah. Because the chief end of man, you know, what is our chief end? Why did God create us? What's the, what's the ultimate purpose for mankind? As the catechism says, the chief end of yeah. man is to glorify God mm -hmm. and to enjoy Him Forever, Forever. Mm -hmm. right? And those two things are, are, are joined. Mm -hmm. Man's true joy in his existence is found when God, God's glory is preeminent in importance. When what matters most to me is the glory of God, I find the greatest joy in my life. And so it's not until I'm at that place where I can say, if God is glorified, it's good. Mm -hmm. If God is glorified, I'm thrilled. Mm -hmm. it's, it's when I'm in that place that I can know true joy in my own, in my own soul. Mm -hmm. And this comes into play in all sorts of issues. You know, when, when your sufferings mean God's glory, can you find a joy in your sufferings? Mm. When your loss, you know ultimately is gonna be for God's glory and for your good, can you find joy even mm. in that loss? It's not mm. necessarily joy in the suffering itself, sure, right. but in the yeah. purposes and the outcomes of it. Mm -hmm. Same thing with loss, et cetera. Yep. So, so sickness, mm -hmm. limitations. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think about older saints because my mom now is living with us and I think about older saints who meet with increasing limitations and sure. how frustrating that can be for mm -hmm. them. Do you, do you, is, do, what you want the most in your last years, is it to glorify God? Because if he's glorified even in, in, in your limitations, so now you have to give yourself, for example, to prayer. This is the greatest way now you can serve. You used to serve in so many different ways, but now the way he's calling you to serve is in the privacy of your home as you're engaging him in prayer. Can you find joy even in these years of limitation? So it's, it's that, that childlike simplicity, that childlike faith that says, God, I'm gonna be content with what you tell me sure. about yeah. these things. Yeah. So these deep, you know, in many mm. ways, mystical questions, mysterious mm. is a better word, the devil's purpose, the doctrine, or the decree rather, concerning the fall and all of that, it's for God's glory, mm. and that's enough. Yeah, you made me think about just Job in general and, um, and the main question uh, there in Job and how God has permitted these things to happen to Job. And then there is this kind of very lengthy 42 chapters of like endless speculation um, but at the end of the day, it seems like Job is doing what you what you have just said. 
I, I, I give myself to you, Lord. I, I can't understand I close this. my mouth. Yeah, yeah. The, the Lord gives, the Lord tests, or takes away. Blessed be the name of Amen. the Lord. I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand. And, 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 and at the end, yeah, he closes his mouth. At the end, he's, he's shut up at the greatness and glory of God. And I wonder if that's instructive for us for discipleship even today, um, that these sort of endless speculations about this question doesn't lead us to the lasting joy that we ultimately seek. That's exactly, right? that's so, yeah. so wise, Josh. And I love the fact, I think you made a distinction that we also wanna make in, in our conversation, and that is he allowed these things to take place in Job's life. It's not that God delighted in what he allowed in and of itself. Right, that's good. But yeah. he had a purpose for it. Mm -hmm. So it's not that God delights in evil. He doesn't, he hates evil, but he had a reason to decree the fall of Satan and the fall of man. There's, there's a, a, a greater end beyond the thing itself. Mm -hmm. And in that God did delight in mm -hmm. and his glory will be put on display. And mm -hmm. in that we delight, mm -hmm. uh, even in the difficulties that we face. Pastor, fundamental to all Christian doctrine is the Trinity. This is fundamental to uh, the whole of the Christian canon, that God is three persons in one divine essence. I guess a real challenge for us, especially as we evangelize, people outside of our faith know kind of about that too, and it's inexplicable to, to them, at least. So our question is this, how do you explain something very difficult to explain, something like the Trinity to a non-Christian? Yeah, we'll never do better than just to say what Scripture says. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And, and even among us, right, as believers, we have to admit the Trinity is hard to get our mind around. Yeah. In, in fact, even as the Trinity is defined and explained in, in historic confessions, it's with very careful language. Yeah. And we're simply stating what Scripture says and making sure that what we say about it isn't in conflict with what Scripture says. So it's really no different no matter who you know, who it is we're trying to explain that doctrine to, we can't do better than to simply say what the Bible says. I think our, our attitude in it, though, is to declare to an unbeliever the true God. Yeah. I mean, that's why would I even, you know, explain the Trinity to an unbeliever? Well, because that's who God is. And so I think about Paul's sermon in, on Mars Hill at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, where he says to them, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And then he says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. I, mm -hmm. I want to explain the true God to you. Uh, you you mm -hmm. acknowledge you don't know him, so let me explain who he is. And that's the sense in which we, we would talk about the Trinity to an unbeliever. This is who God is. This is who he has revealed himself to be and then be prepared to take them uh, along that, that, that course that you have to travel that brings all of the passages together that would make the Trinity inescapable. You know, you're not gonna find a single verse of scripture that says God sure. is Trinity. Yeah. So you have to be prepared to, to make the case from the scriptures. But the reason you would do it is you're, you're proclaiming God mm -hmm. to a person. I guess this is one of those uh, times, really all of Christian doctrine, but one of those times where we can really depend on those who have gone before us mm. and labored to, to really explain the doctrine of the Trinity to us. So I'm thinking you mentioned the old confessions and creeds, so the Nicene Creed and Chalcedon and so on and so forth, which labored to explain what the Trinity really means. How much should we as Christians today, 21st century, depend on those old creeds to explain, even to ourselves or maybe to others. Oh, they're uh, tremendously they're, helpful. And, and it would be arrogance to think that, that 
we don't need to stand on the shoulders of those who've come before us. We all do that. Mm-hmm. There's a very real sense that when you think about any kind of theology book that you read or commentary that you read, I mean, this is accumulated knowledge. That's true. Yeah. We don't have original thoughts. Mm-hmm. So we do want to be careful of things like plagiarism, but, but all we're doing is taking what someone has taught us at some point in our lives and making sure that we're formulating it in a way that's unique to ourselves. It, we can't say that there's anything I know that someone didn't have a hand in teaching me. Mm-hmm. So those creeds are vital. Uh, it tells us that we're in that stream of historic orthodoxy, and it's arrogance to just step out of that stream hmm. and think that I'm not standing on dangerous ground. Mm-hmm. So those, those, those who've come before us have helped us understand how best to express these mm-hmm. truths. On this season of the podcast, we've actually had several questions related to prayer. Mm. And uh, when I talk about the Trinity to, to people, whether it's Christians or non-Christians, I often try to think about the Trinity as it relates to how we pray. I wonder if you could talk about that too. We, we got a little bit of that when we had our discussion about the Lord's Prayer. Mm. So how are the three persons of the Trinity active, or, or how do we pray with those three persons in mind? Well, if you look at the at the the pattern that you see most often in the New Testament, for example, regarding prayer, it's to the Father, mm-hmm. in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son. Mm-hmm. To the Father, through the Son, animated by, informed by the Spirit. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. So mm-hmm. our prayers informed by Scripture, the Spirit's at work in our lives as we pray, uh, the ground upon which we stand, whereby we have this access to the Father is redemption's ground. It's due to the blood of Jesus Christ. It is in our Savior that we are now acceptable to the Father, and we come to God the Father in His name, in the name of Christ. So that's the pattern you see most often in the New Testament. Uh, There are times that you you hear in the New Testament men appealing to Jesus directly or referring their interaction with God to the Spirit Himself. Mm -hmm. You you see these things in the New Testament, but the, the pattern that's most often repeated is to the Father, through the Son, by the, by the power of the Spirit. Yeah, so, so what you're saying then is not only is our doctrine, our doctrine of God, who we know Him to be grounded in this idea of a trinity, not only that, but the life of the church too, and our relationship with God, as you said, is animated or best explained in this Trinitarian relationship. Yeah, we're, we're actually more Trinitarian than we know. Yeah, that's good. Uh, because we're, we're living out these things in... in in the, in, in the knowledge of the Trinity in almost a, a background manner. We're not mm-hmm. thinking about it directly, accessing it every moment, but the way we're living our lives is Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. You know, every time I go to the Father in prayer in the name of Jesus, and I understand that I need help, mm-hmm. <laughs> that this, the Spirit's intercession, even in my groaning when I don't oh, know what good. to say, mm-hmm. I'm living out Trinitarian truth. Mm-hmm. And, and so we do this all the time, almost not mindful of it. All right, Pastor, I want to bring up a question about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and this is often associated with the unforgivable sin is how people describe it. So this person asks, you know, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and how do they know if they've committed it? I want to read first this passage in Matthew 12. This is where there's a demon-oppressed man and uh, Jesus heals him, and then he's in this, you know, discussion with the Pharisees about, you know, about what took place, and they're jealous of him, of course. And, uh, and towards the end of that passage, this is in Matthew 12, uh, 30, 
Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So what does that mean? That, that seems really serious, and, um, and especially for a Christian. Yeah. Um, we, we know that in Christ our sins are forgiven. They're erased, past, present, future. Our, our sins are covered at the cross. But this seems to be saying that there is a kind of unforgivable sin too. I wonder if you could explain that to us. Yeah, we talk about blasphemy. We're talking about something that's insulting to an outrageous degree. Specifically, when we think about God, we're thinking about thoughts, attitudes, words that insult God, that are dismissive of God, that mock God. In this case, an emphasis is on the spoken word. Verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So you can have blasphemous thoughts and attitudes, but in this case, you have blasphemous words, mm -hmm. words that are spoken. And our Lord says in that verse that there's a kind of speech against the Spirit of God that will not be forgiven. Mm -hmm. He says, either in this age or in the age to come. And it's not uncommon that you meet with Christians, usually, I mean, people who are born again, who have come under some sort of fear or dread mm -hmm. that they might not be saved because they fear they've committed this sin. Mm -hmm. That's usually where I've yep. met with this, Josh, yep. is people who are troubled because they feel like they might have committed this mm -hmm. sin. So a few thoughts. One, this is just for me, this is just for Richard. I'm not certain that this particular sin can be committed today mm. be because of the very nature of it in, in, in the text we just read, mm -hmm. which is you have the Son of God on the earth, the, the eternal Son incarnated, mm. performing miraculous works. And, and the significance of that is that they were signs. Right? These are signs worked by the Father, by the power of the Spirit of God in and through the life of the Son of God. So this is God attesting to His own Son by what mm -hmm. He does. And people witness these things that they have no explanation for. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are things taking place that have never happened since the world began. Mm -hmm. And knowing, so I'm, I'm thinking specifically now about the Pharisees at one point saying, if we let Him go on like this, mm -hmm. Everyone will see these things he's doing and they're going to believe in him. I mean, so they're even out of their own mouths admitting things are taking place that ought to move people to mm -hmm. believe in him as the Messiah. And yet not only are they not believing in him, not only do they want him dead, mm -hmm. but they're attributing what he's done by the power of the Spirit to Satan. Mm -hmm. they're, they're taking what is light and they're calling it darkness. Mm. And they're taking what is the power and work of God and they're attributing it to Satan. Mm. That, that is really an unrepeatable sort of set of circumstances. To have God in human flesh standing before your eyes, performing signs worked by His Father, by the power of the Spirit in and through His life, and then attributing that to Satan. Mm -hmm. so, so it is to, to have, in a sense, it is to have full light you're not in the dark, you're not confused. In fact, he says something interesting here, Josh. He says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, well, that's Jesus, mm -hmm. will be forgiven. But as you, as you know, that, that title, Son of Man, emphasizes His humanity, humanity right? Sure. So it's possible to see Jesus and not have a full understanding of who He is, to see Him as a man, mm -hmm. to misunderstand Him as just a man, to speak harsh things against Him, 
thinking he's just a man and be forgiven that. Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, is an example of that. I mean, he was breathing out threats against Christians, That's putting true. Christians to death. He would have absolutely denied that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God until he met the resurrected, glorified Christ on the road to Damascus, mm -hmm. and he believes he's saved. So obviously that sin of his former thoughts about Jesus, that sin was forgiven. That's, that's what our Lord is talking about. You can get him wrong at one point in your life's story and yet be forgiven and be saved and get him right before you die and, and come to faith in Christ. But someone who has been given such light that they know who he is, but don't want to admit it. They know who he is, but they, they want to actually take what they've seen unexplainable apart from God and attribute that to Satan. Mm -hmm. There's no, no more light to give you at that point. Mm -hmm. What more can be given to you that you don't already have? And, and I think that's the danger, that in, that in that fullness of light, the danger being described, that mm -hmm. in the fullness of revelation, in the fullness of light, even, even light in you, you have been enlightened. You know who he is, and then with that kind of light, you reject him. There's nowhere else for you to go. There's no hope for such a soul. Uh, I think it's interesting. Our Lord never gives us the, the evidences of when someone's committed that sin. Right. It's a warning, mm -hmm. but he doesn't, he doesn't attempt to quantify it. Mm -hmm. you know, this, now, here's when you know you'll have committed it. He mm -hmm. doesn't do that. It's a warning. We find similar things because someone might, might say, well, Richard, I'm not sure about that idea that it's, it's not able to be committed in our day because you have similar warnings, for example, post-resurrection, post-ascension in the book of Hebrews. Mm -hmm, that's true. Uh, Hebrews yeah. 10, 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and of fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? And on he goes. They might ask, is that the blasphemy of the spirit? Well, that, that text doesn't say that that's the sin being committed in this case. But I would say it's similar. It's similar to what we talked about there in Matthew 12 in that what's envisioned here is we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. I've been enlightened. I know what the truth is. And then I go on rejecting it anyway. But in this case, it doesn't say that sin can't be forgiven. It says what the only thing left for you if you, if you go on in this way is judgment. Uh, there's nowhere else for you to go. There's no other Savior given to men except Jesus. You reject Him. There's no other Savior for you. There's no other gospel than the gospel that's been delivered to you. If you know it, if you've heard it, if you're enlightened to it, and then you reject it, there's no hope. There's nowhere else to go. So there's a similarity, but I, wouldn't, I don't know that it's exactly the same sin mm -hmm. that Jesus is describing in Matthew 12. So let me wrap it up by saying mm -hmm. this. If you care whether you've committed that sin or not, so, so let's just say I'm wrong and the sin can still be committed today. Okay. Blasphemy of the Spirit, which is unforgivable mm -hmm. and it's, it's eternal, cannot be forgiven. If you care about whether you've committed it or not, you haven't. Because what's envisioned there in, Mark, in Matthew 12 
is someone who sees and with viciousness, I mean with mm -hmm. blasphemy, rejects the truth. Okay. So, so that's not the, the, the burdened, in many cases I've met it, believer mm -hmm. who's, who's afraid they've committed that sin. If you're, if you're concerned, you haven't. In addition, we want to remember the character of God. Uh, our God is not cruel. Mm -hmm. He's good. He's loving. He delights in mercy. He's not hiding himself. He's revealed himself to the extent that, he, that we had in Jesus of Nazareth. We had God with man, Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. I mean, he came in person, God has. In the, and in the person of his son said to us, here I am. And here is how uh, you can be saved. So God is not, not playing mind games with people. You know, they want to be saved, but they can't be saved. They want to believe the gospel, but he's withholding something from them. That's not the character and nature of our God. He pleads with sinners. He has us present the gospel in such a way that we exhort people to believe. Mm -hmm. This is the New Testament pattern that we see. So, so God is pleading with sinners to be saved, not playing mind games with sinners to keep them lost. So when, when someone is, comes under a fear that they wonder whether or not they've committed this sin, go to the gospel. Mm -hmm. Go to the gospel, hear God's promises, hear God's pleadings, and believe the gospel, and then rest in the knowledge that the gospel comes not just with demand, but with promise. The gospel, it, it, it has a command to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also comes with promise that everyone who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Mm -hmm. So God isn't playing mind games with you. He pleads with you. He offers himself to you. You trust in his son. He saves you. And then know you're saved by grace alone, mm -hmm. by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so if you believe, you are saved. Mm -hmm. And you can, can rest your mind and heart and eternity on the surety of God's promises. He, he's a, a, an altogether truthful God. He never lies. Mm -hmm. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Straight Truth Podcast. Now, Straight Truth is listener supported. So if you'd like to find out ways how you can help us to continue to produce this podcast, you can go to our website and find out ways to do that, straighttruth.net. At that website, you'll also find links to all of our previous episodes and our social media channels, so be sure to check it out. Straight Truth is a production of Walking in Grace Ministries, the preaching and teaching ministry of Pastor Richard Caldwell. For more information, go to walkingingrace.org.